Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. If you're an interior design professional, you're a stager, you're a stylist, you are a landscape designer or an architect, you're in the right place. This is Business of Design, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden, brought to you by Business of Design, a coaching community for independent designers like you. We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. I want to say right off the bat, thank you so much to Kravit Inc., Kravit Fabrics. You know, they've been around since 1918, and they are a fifth-generation family-run business. That probably explains why their customer service is so good. Of course, I rely on them as my go-to resource for fabric and wall coverings and trimmings, and now even carpet and furniture, thanks to Kravit Curated. I find they really understand the pressures of my business. Their customer service is excellent. They have a vast variety of fabrics to choose from. And frankly, I love doing business with them. Thank you so much, Kravity Inc., for sponsoring our Business of Design podcast. And now on to the show. It's summertime in North America, and this has me working outdoors a lot more than I typically do, and I've been consulting with some landscape designers uh, on various teams for client projects. I realize that not everyone includes that as part of their services, but I thought it might be helpful to hear from a landscape designer how we can work together with other professionals and, in fact, add value to our client projects. You're going to love Carson Arthur. He is this week's guest. Now, as you listen to the episode, think about whether or not you're missing out on opportunities to add value to the services you provide clients. I can tell you that 15 years ago, I was so busy and I didn't have the systems and structures in place I do today to run my business. So when an opportunity for more work came up on a job, even if it was an ongoing existing job, I would put it off or defer or postpone indefinitely or even try to dissuade clients from doing the project because I felt like I was running as fast as I possibly could already. I did not need more work. I just needed to get a grip on the work I already had. Now, of course, the sad thing was back then, I wasn't even really making money and I was that crazy busy. Um, And today I have a very different story. I have a lot of systems and structures in place. I have my 15-step project management strategy in place. So when a client says, like happened today, hey, by the way, on the weekend we bought a cottage, I'm like, hooray, let's do this. We're working on her city condo, but if she's got a new cottage, I'm ready to start when she is. She's been a great customer. I will cop to something else that I'm not particularly proud of as well. When I'm so crazy busy and I don't have time to just slow down and really use the creative side of my brain, I don't give clients my best effort. So instead of thinking of a beautiful wallpaper for the powder room, I just 
go to paint. Let's just paint it. It'll be faster. I don't think perhaps about a faux finish that might be amazing on the dining room ceiling because I don't have time to. So we just paint the dining room ceiling, whatever color. I don't offer clients the chance to panel the walls in their foyer, even though that space desperately needs some architectural interests. Um, And I don't want to work from that place. I really want to be able to say at the end of the project, I did my very best on behalf of the client. I gave it my all. I really thought it through. I gave them options. I offered them things they might not have thought about without me. And I looked ahead and anticipated some problems that might be happening that maybe weren't part of my original scope of work. For example, the clients have pot lights that look like they're from 1971. You know that they're on their last leg, right? So I could easily ask my electrician to come in and give us a quote on retrofitting those pot lights before we paint. And that's the wise and smart thing to do. Adding additional services to your repertoire, like adding to your scope of work, I guess, especially though when you're working with other professionals, can be really good for you and this is important, it can be really good for your clients. Who doesn't want to add more value to the service you provide? Now, Carson has a number of helpful statistics that he just rattles off the top of his head. Of course he does. He works in landscaping all the time. I don't. But I do find it helpful to know a few things like that when I'm talking to my clients. For example, it's possible to increase the value of your home or your client's homes by adding a mature tree to the front yard. I had no idea. And Carson even gives us kind of a rough price on what that's going to cost. Now, he said that can increase the home's resale value by as much as 3%. So if you're talking about a million-dollar property, which these days is not too hard to get to, that's an additional $30,000 that's going to go into the bank when you sell. Carson goes on to say that improving curb appeal can increase resale value by as much as 8%. Again, if you're talking about that $1 million home, that's an additional $80,000. I want to know that for me personally, but I also want to know that for my clients. I want to be able to provide my clients with valuable information that makes the service I bring them even more worthwhile. Now, if you're listening to us in the car, I don't want you to try to text yourself this information. You don't have to do that. All of these tips and more are available to you on our website, businessofdesign.com, in the podcast section. Every single episode, including this one, which is episode 17, The Whole Home, has a list of takeaways, interesting facts the guests mentioned, uh, or links to products that they love right there in the show notes. If you haven't been using our site, now's a great time to start. I love also this idea that Carson shared with me about project management, um, that when a client feels, for example, her kitchen isn't large enough and there's no room to expand inside the house, you can suggest they look outdoors to acquire more cooking space, an outdoor kitchen or a plain old barbecue center, or maybe a fancy pizza oven, depending on your client's budget, can really give the homeowner more kitchen, even though there's no space inside. So Lots of good things we can learn by working with other professionals, and uh, I think you're going to love listening to Carson. 
Carson Arthur is an internationally recognized landscape designer with a focus on meeting homeowners' needs while creating environmentally friendly designs. Throughout his 15-year television career, Carson teaches homeowners how to raise the value of their homes through outdoor renovations. Carson is part of the City Line team, which is the television show that I do. He writes a number of uh, columns uh, for print media, and he does, in fact, work directly with clients uh, under his own company. So I love that, right? We are always looking for advice from experts who are working in the field because we all know there's a very big difference between theory Uh, and just teaching about interior design and actually working in interior design. Carson's TV credits include being the host of HGTV's Green Force, uh, also on a show called Room to Grow. Uh, He's been on a whole bunch of different networks, uh, and at the moment he's filming Home to Win, which is an HGTV program, and he's very excited about that. Um, At the end of the podcast, Carson also does share his tips for busting into television, so that's interesting as well. One last bit of housekeeping before we meet Carson. This week's testimonial is from Jess Fisk from Australia. Jess writes in, Adam is a fellow Australian designer I'm fortunate to know through a Facebook thread we have. This interview was exactly what I needed to hear, and thanks to it, I've joined and discovered so much support and information I was searching for, but couldn't find. Thank you, Kimberly, for providing such an amazing platform for designers. Everything you say resonates. Thank you. Jess, thank you so much for that. I want you to know that I get so much more out of this than you guys do, that's for sure. If I'm not constantly reminding myself of best practices, I fall back on my old habits really easily. So uh, thank you for inspiring me every day. Thank you for teaching me new things all the time. And I think we are ready to meet Carson Arthur. Carson, I'm so thankful you took time from your busy schedule. You're probably right in the middle of filming Home to Win number two, aren't you? We are in the middle of it. We're almost at the end, though. So a lot of the episodes, you know, are kind of in the can already. We're basically at the point now where we're about to give this home away for Canadians. So we're waiting for that one Canadian family, the winning family, to come in and put our hands. And it's going to be an amazing finale for the show. That is so fun. I love the concept of the show. Is it fun to do? It looks like it's fun to do. It is fun to do. I mean, it's a bit of a challenge when you've got so many incredibly talented designers and builders all in one space together because we're, we're really focusing on trying to have continuity all through the entire space. And, and you know how every designer will walk into a room and see that room translated very differently. So uh, it's been interesting to see how they each pick up from one another's spaces and then kind of take that continuity through and, and what elements are the, the ones that are actually being pulled in. It's, it's really remarkable, actually. So fun. Well, this is a perfect segue to our topic today because we're going to talk about the whole home. I focus on interior design, mostly residential, but a little bit of commercial, but I rely on an A-team of professionals to do my landscaping work, and that's your wheelhouse. So what do you mean when you talk about whole home design? What does that mean to you? Well, it's for a long time, our industries have sort of worked in parallel, but definitely separate. So the interior designer has always worked on interior space, but now it's, and the exterior has been the outdoors, but now we're starting to see that line being blurred and we're seeing 
just designers. And designers are working in indoor and outdoor and creating this whole home look for one customer. And it's better for the clients because at the end of the day, you know, when you've really identified what your clients' likes are and, and how they want their home to feel, creating inside or outdoor spaces in that sort of lane is, is much easier than trying to retranslate every single time with different designers. Well, it makes everything cohesive, doesn't it? From the curb appeal at the front of the house uh, into the foyer as you step into the house and then right through the back great room and lovely sliding doors that lead to a patio. There's a feeling that there's a flow and there's a harmony that's going on. Absolutely. And, and we always talk in the design profession how it's very jarring if there's no cohesive or cohesion between the rooms on the inside. Well, it's exactly the same. If the outdoor of the house looks absolutely nothing like the inside of the space, it becomes very jarring for somebody who's visiting for the first time or even for a potential buyer. We know that the landscaping and the curb appeal really sets the stage for all the amazing things in the home. So you want it to be reflective of what they will see inside. It's like the, the appetizer for a fantastic dinner. It, it gets you excited for more. I love that. Um, now, I um, don't do landscaping myself, but I know to who to call uh, when I need landscaping done. You and I haven't worked together yet, but we're going to. We're going to figure out how to do that. Um, what do you say to designers who say, oh, I don't want to bring a landscaper in because they're going to spend all the money? Like, how can we become a more cohesive team? Well, I'm not going to lie. Landscaping is very different from gardening. And when people think budgets, they, they often think more of what, in line of what you would spend creating a flower bed versus doing stonework or patios or, you know, creating that big outdoor space. So, yes, landscaping can eat a lot of the budget. So you have to, you know, be financially prepared for that. But at the same time, um, knowing what materials work best outside and knowing what plant material is going to accentuate all of the beautiful design spaces. These are types of things that are very specialty, you know, type of education or skill set to have. So for an, uh, somebody who specializes more on the indoor of the home, bringing in somebody who already has that background can definitely lead to a further success down the road. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I think if the client is going to hire me to do the interior design and I can bring on a landscape designer or landscape architect or architect, that I know and trust, um, that's going to give comfort to the client that the whole thing is going to work together. Absolutely. And you obviously, you want somebody who speaks your language. So as a designer, when you make references for this style, or you're trying to pull in this type of elements, you want an outdoor designer, an outdoor landscape contractor who gets that and is able to give you the materials you're looking for to create that overall impression. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the way that we handle this, and I, I want to know from you if this would work for you, is if we're first on the scene, in other words, I've been hired first, and I see that the landscaping work is about to be done or needs to be done, I'll just bring that straight up to the client and ask them if they'd like us to bring our landscaper into the project. Um, then I know I'm working with professionals I know and trust, they have my back, I have their back, and I think it's a win-win for the client. But Often, when I say that to other designers, they're afraid that the landscaping is going to take all the money that would have gone into the home design. So is there a kind of a price point concern there for you? Again, and I always say this to clients, and whether my client is yourself, I'm contracting the work to me, or I'm actually dealing with the homeowner, I can design an outdoor space 
$200,000 or I can design a space that's $20,000. So being very clear up front as to what the budget is for each component of the job, even if it's, you know, X number of dollars for the bathroom, X number of dollars for front entryway, X number of dollars for the curb appeal. This is the best way to really understand the project, but to set the parameters so that each room doesn't end up going outside of the budget that has been set. Okay. So um, you don't have any um, concerns then about working directly with interior design professionals? No, not at all. And then that's the thing that I always say is, you know, whether your customer is another business professional or somebody who's actually just a straight homeowner, it doesn't matter. You need that person's needs and for what that person's expectation is. So as a designer, um, you're coming to me, I want you to help me create this space. I'm deferring to your judgment because you've brought me into this role. And yeah, I mean, that's sort of the way it has to work. Reality is I don't know anything about what you're doing inside, nor should I be giving you feedback on that. So when you're bringing me in for the outside, it's because you need my expertise in that area. So absolutely, I work with the client if the client is in the design profession already. I love that. Okay. How do you determine return on investment? Um, I know for us, often the return on investment is how they're going to use the space and enjoy the space and love the space, how it enhances their lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. If you're selling, that's a different number altogether. How does that differ in your world? Well, with landscaping, it's a Interesting. We've never really had the numbers and the stats behind what we contribute to a home like we have today. So we're starting to see more and more numbers against things like the front yard, against outdoor living spaces, against driveways and garages. Um, so things like curb appeal, the enticing curb appeal, or the, the actual visual bringing somebody into the house, um, has been speculated as being up to 8% of a home's value. Which is really impressive because what that's wow. saying is, you know, yeah, that first look, the first time somebody sees a home, they're already judging the space. And this is, that one is out of remodeling these cost versus value report for 2017. And then the National Association of Realtors also went on record and said the same thing, that the curb appeal is 8% of a home's view or a home's value, first glance. Wow, I was just taking a note. That's incredible. I yep. didn't expect it to be quite that high. Well, and again, it, so much is dependent on the market. So that's a national number. Obviously, in hot markets, you, the curb appeal isn't as important because everybody's competing for these homes. But when you're in a situation where it's more of a neutral market or maybe it's a, a buyer's mar- a seller's market, then yes, all of a sudden the curb appeal is very important. Buyers are using things like Google Maps to actually look at homes. So they'll look at Google Maps. They'll do a street view with the little guy. They'll drop in place and do a 360. So they're actually looking at the character of the home from the front yard and the space before they're even willing to set up an appointment to go into an open house or to go see the space. Wow. I didn't even consider that. You're absolutely right. Of course, they're going on uh, Google Earth and Google Maps to see what they can see in advance. That totally makes sense. So what kinds of things can designers suggest in terms of adding to curb appeal? Uh, And then those things, of course, have to be implemented by a landscape designer, a landscape architect, somebody who's got the expertise and knowledge. But what sorts of things should we be looking at suggesting to our clients? So straight up, the easiest thing to add value to your home is add a tree in the front yard. We now know that uh, streets that have trees in the front yard, where so there's a tree-lined street, a neighborhood, actually has a 3% increase over a neighborhood that has no trees, exact same houses. 
Wow. Just, now, how big, how big tree, does a tree have to be? Big? Is a big tree, little tree? It has to be. Yeah, it has to be a mature tree. So you're looking for you between 15 and 25 feet, which, you know, if you're thinking about how long you're going to be in the house, obviously, if you're planning to sell within the next five years, you're not going to help yourself. But if you're thinking that 10 to 15 year window, you can absolutely get a tree in the ground today, looking after it through the period that you're in the home and increase your home's value by that 3% just because you have a tree. That's phenomenal. What does something like that cost if I wanted to buy a mature tree? I know it's probably from X to X and it's a widespread, but just off the top of your head, if I want to buy a, a, a tree that's 20 feet tall, what sort of number should I be thinking about? Well, the actual cost of the tree isn't as big of a number as the installation cost. Mm-hmm. So putting in a mature tree has a huge root ball. So digging out and excavating and handling that property is a big piece of you know, equation is a big chunk of um, value. Like that's going to cost you a lot of money. So I've done some pretty big trees that have giant root balls and they're often anywhere between 35 to $5,500 per tree. Okay. All right. But still, if you're talking about increasing the value of your home by 3%, that's worthwhile money to spend immediately. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Sometimes I find clients will say that sounds like so much work. And I always tell them it's not so much work for you. You just write a check. It's a lot of work for Carson. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that we're seeing right now, especially when it comes to curb appeal, is that, you know, there is a fine line between how many plants and shrubs you should put in the front yard versus, you know, when you put too many in and you actually make a space look intimidating. Two big words right now for outdoor spaces are still low maintenance. If you create a space that looks, you know, fussy and has tons of plant materials, intimidating for buyers, that actually hurt your, hurts your home value. However, if you can find that sweet spot where it's welcoming, it's inviting, it looks maintained and well cared for, you can actually raise your home's value between 3 and 4.5% just for having good trees, good shrubs, good landscaping. Wow. How much interest uh, are people showing in um, drought-resistant plants and plants that you don't have to baby? Yeah, it's interesting. We've got three demographics in our marketplace in Canada right now. So we've got the baby boomers who are doing what we never expected. They're selling off the family homes. They're downsizing. They're going, you know, townhouses and and bungalows. And they're more plant savvy than the other demographics. So they're more interested in in, water-resistant plants and drought-tolerant zero-fights because they get it. They were part of that plant generation that, you know, Mark Cullen sort of shepherded in. Then we have Generation X, and Generation X is saying, you know what, I'm going to spend lots of money in my outdoor spaces. I'm of the attitude that I've earned this money. I'm going to spend it the way I want to. And they're spending upwards of $200,000, $400,000 in outdoor renovations. Mm-hmm. And they're justifying by saying, well, I'm not going to buy a cottage. This is my backyard oasis. And when it comes to drought-tolerant plants, they actually are just going with whatever the landscaper says we're going to put in. Mm-hmm. So they're more likely to install irrigation systems than to be worrying about drought-tolerant plants. Yeah, and that makes sense to me, and those must be fun projects to work on. Those are actually, it depends on the homeowner. I mean, you know as well, big budget doesn't necessarily mean, woohoo, this is fun. It, it can <laughs> often have a whole lot of different you know, sets of eyes on it all the time because you're spending a large chunk of money, and there's bigger expectations as a result. Then we have our third group in the marketplace, which is the millennials. Now, the millennials just now are starting to buy houses. In fact, in our marketplace in Canada, there's 35% of the buyers today are millennials between the ages of 25 and 35. 
And they've actually listed, you know, having plants and, and being bee friendly and being more holistic in their home as a priority for why they want to purchase a house over a condominium. So they are absolutely paying attention to drought tolerant and no GMOs and organic and, you know, insecticide free spaces. This is the driving force. What's exciting is because there's such a big demographic and they're, they're huge. They're 25% of our entire population because they're so into this and such a big demographic, they're going to pull retailers with them. So now we're starting to see more and more retailers on board saying, Oh, Hey, we need to cater to this customer all of a sudden, the outdoor things that we're seeing in the marketplace, things like Bluetooth watering systems and, you know, drought power plants, this is really specifically targeting the millennial consumer. Wow. As I'm listening to you, I realize that all of these things that sound familiar and they make sense when you say them, but this is not knowledge that I play with every single day. So it's a little bit stale in the back of my brain. To any designer who's listening, I would say, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know who to hire. And it's okay when you're recommending someone to your clients to say, this is not my wheelhouse, but this is who I trust and rely on to give me this information. Uh, And adding it to your repertoire of things that you provide is a great way to increase the scope of work on projects you work on, increase the amount of money that you're making on projects, and at the end of the day, provide a full service to those clients who are going to be happier at the end of the day. Of course. We, as designers, we we get so focused on the projects that we're managing and we're trying to and we're staying focused that we, we sometimes lose track of this big picture that's happening around us and we're more reactionary instead of being proactive. Is why I spend a lot of time and a lot of traveling right now talking to designers and to landscape companies about, you know, the future of our marketplace and how things are going to change with this whole attitude of whole home where we're really working with, you know, we're working for one family and all the different components all are coming together in our different specialties to create this dream space for these homeowners. But at the same time, being aware that 95% of Canadians say that when they're going to sell their home, they're taking some of that money out for retirement. So, we want to increase the value of their home at the same time as providing their dreams and this amazing space that they want to live in. Mm-hmm. It's a big responsibility at the end of the day, and it's a wonderful thing to do for a living, I would say, too. It's super satisfying. Um, how has the internet changed how you do business? I know a lot of designers are very frustrated with the fact that no matter what they select for a client, the client can go online and find it for less somewhere else. Are you guys experiencing anything like that, or is it different because you're dealing with plants? It's, it's a little bit different. The outdoor world, uh, and I don't want to sort of paint with broad strokes here, but the outdoor world is a little bit different in the sense that when it comes to furnitures and accessories, the designer who creates the outdoor space isn't usually tied in the exact same way. So when I'm doing designs for homeowners, when I'm talking about their outdoor creating outdoor rooms or creating, you know, plant beds or gardens. The furnitures are a component, but they're not really what I'm driving in the space. So I would lead my client to different furniture retailers and say, what, you know, what do you like so that I can pull inspiration for that and create a big enough space. But I'm not specifically sourcing those pieces of furniture for them. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to be online, which is nice. (laughs) Yeah. Are they shopping online to compare your price for plants or for outdoor pavers or water features? Are those kinds of things becoming more challenging to sell to clients? 
A little bit. I mean, the one good thing about the outdoor world is you can't ship plants cross border. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to deal with uh, my clients going onto U.S. sites saying, well, I can send this in from, you know, California for half the price that you're charging me. Because legally, plant material can't be shipped across the border because it has soil. And soil will contain parasites. And from an agricultural perspective, we don't back and forth with the soil. So I get away from that one a little bit. The one thing that I'm really clear with my clients is when I'm quoting out a job or I'm, I'm bidding it out for them, I break it down into components, but I don't break it down in cost for, for each single thing. So I don't say, you know, a Japanese maple is going to cost you X number of dollars. I say the total trees and plants in this design are going to cost you X number of dollars. Mm-hmm. So that always gives me a little bit of room to, you know, go up, to go down, depending on what's in season, what's looking good at the time of year, how big the plants are. I mean, it gives me some options and a little bit of flexibility. Okay. So that's a good tip in terms of project management, because we have that in common, right? We're always managing our clients' expectations. Money is a big part of it. How do you deal with clients about budget? Because they're probably equally um, uneducated when it comes to how much it's going to cost to do landscaping as they are when it comes to what it's going to cost to uh, furnish the inside of the house. Yeah. The the challenge that I have with clients is landscaping is so new to most Canadians in the sense, this idea of investing outdoors, it just hasn't been done the way it is currently being done today. And what I mean by that is more and more homeowners are coming in with the bigger budget saying, I've got 65,000. What can we do? So educating them on price per square foot for real stone versus a man-made stone versus a composite wood for a deck versus a natural wood. That's the big component for me personally. So when I know what their budget is and what I'm working towards and what kind of look I'm trying to create for them, I always give them, I don't want to say the high low, but I always say, okay, if, if this is what you're looking for, be prepared for this type of pricing. This is an average. And the average is based on, you know, some of the low materials versus some of the high materials. And as we choose materials that are really speaking to you and that you want to see in your space, that number is going to fluctuate based on the materials you choose. Okay. So it's similar to inside. Do you find that clients um, give you a budget that's accurate and will pay for everything on their wish list? Or is there some discrepancy there? I've had a little bit of discrepancy, but for the most part, by and large, because of what I do in the television world um, and because of how busy I am, I, my clients are fairly honest with me. They they know that I don't have time to sort of mess around. And as we're going through the process, if they decide they want extra elements, they know, and, I, and I'm up front with them right up front, I say, you know, as you add more things like a gazebo or a pergola, obviously your budget is going to have to increase as a result. And I think, you know, because so many interior people or, or home designers have really educated the client, this is not a new conversation for them. They get it. They, they know that if they want to put in the, the soaker tub, obviously their budget is going to have to reflect that. Wow. Now, do you ever introduce an element that you know is outside the budget, but you really think they're going to love it? I am always afraid to do that. Okay. Welcome to our world. Yeah, we feel that kind of pain. But I find sometimes if it's a legitimate um, recommendation, in other words, I think it's really going to work in the space. I think the clients are going to love it. I will go out on a limb and say this isn't in the budget, but I want to show it to you anyway. And often the clients will go for it because they know I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not there just to make money. I actually am trying to get them uh, something that will satisfy them long term. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely respect that. And I do try and add those elements in because obviously if they're bringing in a designer, then they're looking for guidance. So if they already had it already figured out in their head as to what they wanted, why would they have a designer in the first place? So I do try and challenge the, the preconceived notions and I will try and work them around certain things, but I always try and justify the decisions that I'm making from a design perspective so that they'll understand it so that it doesn't come across as if it's just an upsell. Okay. So that's the one I'm always cautious about is the buyer or the, the homeowner. Oh, they're just trying to sell me on things I don't really need. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be the person who's doing that. And certainly it doesn't feel good as a client or a customer to have someone doing that to you. What What's the difference between a landscape architect, a landscaper, uh, and a landscape designer? A rubber stamp. A landscape architect goes through a little bit extra education process. So it's university degree has, they have a rubber stamp so that they can do stuff for city for, you know, partner with urban planning. So they have a bit more of education on that side of things. A landscape designer is somebody who, again, can be educated, have their certificate, have all those things, but really focuses on the residential aspect of things. Whereas a landscaper is somebody who, more or less is like a contractor, same sort of role. They've, they've learned their trade and they bring their skills with them a lot through trial and error, a lot through, you know, being on site and learning that type of stuff. Okay. And you can get great service at every one of those levels. And conversely, you can get bad service at every one of those levels. So you do still want to make sure that that person is passionate about what they do and is committed to doing excellent work and has integrity and all of that. Absolutely. And the one thing about the internet that's made it very nice for the homeowner is more and more of people's portfolios and their websites are available online so that as a homeowner, you can really get a sense of, you know, what this person is capable of doing and their sense of style. You know, don't assume that every single landscaper, exactly the same as any single designer, has only one voice. I mean, we all work with different levels and different textures and different styles. But when it comes to the backyard, the, the extension of the home, the outdoor room, is getting a lot of focus right now. And, and everybody's always joked that, you know, in Canada, we don't have a lot of seasons outside. So why would people spend so much money? But what we're seeing is homeowners are so tired of being indoors all winter long that when that spring weather hits, they want to be outside as much as possible. So this, this concept of the outdoor room is really being driven by that necessity. And when I'm in a design situation, I always say to the homeowner, what don't you have inside? Is your kitchen big enough? Do you have the fireplace? Do you have the gray room? Like, what are you missing indoors? And try and work that into my outdoor design. That way I know that they're going to use it more. So if they say, yes, Carson, I wish my kitchen was bigger, immediately I say, what about an outdoor kitchen? Mm -hmm. What about giving you that space outside? We can't change the inside. So what about the outside? We can add the smoker, add the pizza oven, give you more outdoor kitchen space that you can use all summer long to offset what you don't have inside. So use it as an extension of your home. Absolutely. And what we're seeing now in the marketplace is buyers are saying the same thing. So when they walk into a house for the first time and they're, and they're sort of thinking about how they're going to use that house in their own lives, if they say, oh, this kitchen is too small – then they see the outdoor kitchen, immediately it's like, oh, but we have that as the option. So it, it gives the buyer the exact same thing that you're thinking about for your own space because odds are the way they're going to use your home is pretty close to the way you use, want to use the home. So 
accentuating what you don't have, adding to it outdoors is a natural way to actually extend your living space, but also increase the value of your home at the same time. Excellent. So you mentioned the outdoor kitchen, and that's been a a trend that's been growing in popularity and becoming more and more common. What's the next big thing that's going to hit our outdoor spaces? Again, we're, well, (laughs) now you're getting me in the crystal ball. Um, We're (laughs) becoming those three demographics that are really driving this. And the one thing we're seeing with the millennial population is they want this concept of this holistic outdoor space. And because they want to be more involved in their backyard insofar as actually doing things, we're going to see more and more technology and cooler things surrounding this whole idea of growing food in your outdoor space. So making more of your outdoors and instead of just a leisure space. So I'm seeing a lot of vertical design for vegetable gardens so that it looks aesthetically good, but at the same time, it's functional. And that, I think, is really going to be a trend going forward. Oh, I love that idea. I've seen a lot of living walls, uh, and they're vertical and beautiful. I never thought of doing a vegetable garden as a vertical wall outside. Ooh, I think I like that. Plus, I don't have to bend over so much. <laughs> Gardening is hard. Exactly. It's really hard. Well, and it is hard, of course. I mean, the, the other thing with millennials being this younger generation, the but then what they're saying about why they're choosing homes is very interesting. So obviously money is a driving force for this young group. Secondly is space. They actually are literally saying they're willing to move out of the city to get a little bit extra space. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, which is really interesting for me, because for most of us, location should have been a driving force for them. But for the millennials, the ability to be outdoors, to have outdoor gardens and curb appeal is more important to them than location. Wow, so that, that surprises the heck out of me. I thought for sure you would say the opposite, that they're all about location, location, location. They were when they were in condos, mm-hmm. but now they're at the point where they're coupling up, they're having kids, they're saying, okay, one child in our 800, down, or 800 square foot Liberty uh, was great, but now we want two, we got to get out. So they're, they're leaving the downtown core in droves right now. We're seeing it in Vancouver. We're seeing it in all the major cities across the country. These millennials are getting out, and they're looking for jobs that allow them to work from home. Wow. So more and more, yeah, more companies, even reducing the amount of office employees by drastic amounts so that they can save on rent, real estate rental costs. So they're saying to these guys, go work from home. The millennials, okay, I'm going to go work from home. And then they're going to choose houses that allow them to do outdoor things because they're saying growing food to be healthy is a priority. But also they want their kids to be in the backyard. They want their kids to get dirty and have outdoor experiences instead of just being on their tablets in front of the TV. Right. And there's no reason your office can't be at the patio table uh, when the weather is nice because your office consists of a laptop, which is, you know, weighs nothing. Exactly. I've been obsessed in the last couple of years with finding the perfect outdoor patio heater. Um, You know, my favorite restaurants in LA have them and it can be a little bit, you know, it can be winter and freezing there, you know, 75 degrees (laughs) and everybody's just freezing and they turn on these little outdoor patio heaters and suddenly it's, you know, like a summer day. So um, is that something that people are adding more and more to their backyard spaces and patio spaces? They are, but not in the ways that you would expect. 
the way you described was to be able to sit outside and, and have a heater so that you can sit and be comfortable. That's great, but that's not what homeowners are investing in. Instead, what they're doing is they're putting these heaters around their barbecues. So that when they're barbecuing, they're staying warm so that they can expand their barbecuing season, which is amazing. It blows me away, but that's what they're doing. When it comes to the seating areas, yes, fire is definitely being incorporated. People love fire, and, and we have clean options that can be used pretty much anywhere. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing the, the big heavy throws, the big pillows, the overstuffed kind of aspect mm-hmm. of outdoors being incorporated even more. So you're still warm, even though you're technically heated. I never thought of that. And you just helped me figure out what I'm going to get my husband for his birthday. I never thought of heating the barbecue. He goes out there in weather that is just ridiculously cold sometimes. And poor man, he's putting on his ski jacket in order to go out and flip the fish or whatever. So that's yeah. a great idea. I'm going to incorporate that. Yeah. And they're so fantastic, these heaters now. They're they're stainless steel. They look good. So if they mount on the side of your house, they're not a visual eye. I mean, that actually is being, you know, a big trend specifically around the barbecue. Wow. Any other um, things that people are asking to add to their outdoor wish list? Well, in Canada, again, when you talk about outdoor furniture, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And more and more people are inspired by big sectionals and the fireplaces that are in the center of coffee tables and, you know, big eight and 10 person hot tubs. So the outdoor spaces themselves are growing. And finally, we're starting to see a reduction in grass. Canadians are saying, I don't need the lawn. The kids aren't going to go out and play soccer if I abandon them out there. That's not what they're going to do. So they're now sacrificing the lawn in favor of these bigger spaces to house these things that they want. I'm putting in pizza ovens this year and outdoor fireplaces that look like actually indoor fireplaces. So, you know, these take big square footage. Canadians are finally saying, yes, I'm going for it. Yes, this is what I want. I'm going to have it. And I'm going to have a bigger outdoor living space. Carson, how long have you been in business for yourself? I started in marketing for Procter & Gamble about 20 years ago. And I had the opportunity to jump out and and, uh, chase a new career path got into landscape design in, oh, oh gosh, yeah, it's about 19, 18 years ago now. What's interesting for me, though, was when I was in school, I was in a co-op program, and the jobs that were coming up for the co-op were wheelbarrow jockey or working for a lawn care maintenance company. And I said, you know, that's not what I want to do. I'm already 29. I want to, you know, kind of do something different with my life. So I got a behind-the-scenes job for my co-op assignment in my design school so I was behind the scenes of a TV show, a gardening show. And the producer of that said, hey, you'd be really good. And I was a TV show from that. So I was cast in my first TV show before I'd even completed my education. Oh, my gosh. That's exactly my scenario, too. I became an expert in front of watchful eyes. Um, I, I got lucky as well. And that's usually how it happens. You just get super lucky. So as long as we're on the topic, then, it, it, for anybody listening who would love to have a spot on television, what advice can you give them about getting a foot in the door? Run away. Run away. <laughs> no. It's interesting, especially if indoor little less challenging, right? Maybe focus or focus on the indoor aspect because we all have homes. We all have that common, you're the commonality. 
when it comes to outdoors, landscaping and gardening shows, it's significantly harder because there are no national advertisers that say, hey, we want you to promote our product on a national level. So it's much more challenging for a network to promote that type of TV show. That said, if it was me and I was starting over again today, I would go straight to web. Wouldn't even look back. So you mean, are you suggesting that they produce their own uh, YouTube channel show or? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the availability to create your own viewership, to culture your own viewership, to really react to something that's more interactive in that sense is something that I never had on TV. What we did was we produced our TV shows and then you aired it and you hoped that what you did on that TV show worked. So there was no instant, you know, back and forth. Or mm, that interaction. To change. Yeah, that's yeah. a great so tip. I, I think for YouTubers now, you can actually develop a huge audience. Uh, you, you're going to have to put work into it. This isn't like easy, just start and you're going to immediately have it. But if you know what you're talking about, if you have a sense of style that you know translates, that people want to hear about, I think the opportunity is there for somebody to really come in and do some amazing things in the Canadian marketplace. That's a great um, suggestion. So go straight to YouTube. I'm sure there's tons of tutorials on how to make that happen as well. And it wouldn't hurt hurt to get some uh, on-air experience at whatever your local television station is. That can always be good for you and help grow your local business as well. You do have to know what you're talking about, though. I mean, you put yourself out there in the world. And as you know, in fact, the other day we were on a television show together and you were showing some coral or faux coral. I don't even remember what it was, but I said, oh, be very careful when you show that. If you say that's coral, you're going to get, you know, 12,000 notes, emails um, saying that you're destroying the oceans. Uh, and we we, oh, yeah. we kind of laughed about it, but it's true. You do have to be very careful uh, because your audience is going to hold you to account. Yes. And when you promote yourself as being an expert or, you know, having something to say, like a, a point of view, people really watch you very closely, even more so yeah. um, than if you're somebody just saying, hey, I love pink. Like it, it, it becomes more than that. You're explaining why you love pink, what shades of pink you're loving, you know, how it works in the space. Like these are the types of things that if you want followers and you want people to turn to you as an expert, you have to have an opinion and you have to it up, be confident in your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the media side. Now let's get back to the business side. You've had in the Mm -hmm. last uh, almost 20 years, an opportunity to work with lots of different clients. What type of client do you like to work for? My favorite one is the, oh, you're on TV, do whatever you want in this space. I'll just pay the bill. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) they're not if you'd like. Uh, The client that I prefer to work with the most are the ones that, you know, have some sort of ideas to what they're looking for. They have at least opinions about the aesthetics that they like. Um, when they're wishy-washy, those are the hardest clients for me when I'm trying to interpret, you know, clues from them about what they're talking about and they don't, they don't know. That, that kills me. Yeah, that's so true. Actually, if they have a Pinterest board and every photo is a totally different style, I know that this is going to be really hard to pin them down. And conversely, if they have the same Pinterest board, but every single image is an iteration of the same style, I think this is going to be so easy. I'm going to be able to make them happy. 
That's true. So a decisive client who kind of knows what they want is a good client. Yeah, the client who's put a little bit of effort into the research before they've contacted me is important. I um, I do have clients all the time who say to me, hey, you're on TV. Um, what do you think you should do in this space? Mm-hmm. And I'll always start that conversation with, if this was my home, this is what I would do. Yeah, It doesn't I, necessarily mean that that's the direction they're going, but at least I'm giving them a starting point. It's so true. They they are hiring you for an opinion. And when you're starting out, that can be very scary. You don't want to give your mm. opinion because what if they don't like it? Maybe you won't get the job. But I agree with you. I've learned over the years that clients want to hear, what would I do if it were my space? And if I go right there, 90% of the time, they'll go with me. And the other 10% mm. of the time, they'll say, no, I don't, I don't like that at all. I was thinking more like this. And then we can regroup and do it that way. Exactly. There are some interesting design differences when it comes to indoors versus outdoors. Outside, I mean, we're working with existing soil. So ground that's already there will dictate a lot of the plant material or structures or what we can actually do in the space. So the, the limitations. Um, whereas, you know, a homeowner say, oh, I want this, and they've pulled this from California, and you know that there's no way you can create that look outside. So these things, that outdoor element puts an extra little wrinkle in that we're, or I personally am always struggling with. Mm-hmm. I think the designers will relate to that as well. Like we, we rarely get to go into a house and they say, do whatever you want, you know, everything can go. Often there are pre-existing conditions and things that you're stuck with and uh, elements in the house that you wish you could change, but not in the budget. And so we're working around them. So I think we can all relate to that. I asked you about lessons. Um, I asked you about clients that you love. What about lessons you've learned from your more challenging clients? client interactions. What sort of things have you learned by uh, being a novice, making a mistake, and having to go back and uh, make a client happy? Uh, Being organized is the name of the game. If you are a disorganized designer and you're asked to lead a project and you're over the map with, you know, follow-up and keeping uh, communication uh, lines open, if you're not capable of doing that or you're not doing that or giving it the attention it needs, that's when problems happen. And I'm an avid believer in the fact that I, I just want to touch base. It doesn't mean I need to micromanage the people I'm working with, but I need to know what's going on so that I can circumvent problems. And when I was in this, I hired good contractors and thought, well, they're amazing. I'm good. I'll just come in and check periodically, and that's where problems happen. <laughs> so the, the more organized you are, the less likely problems are going to happen. Wow, that's great advice for all of us, for sure. Uh, before we wrap it up, and you've been so interesting, and I have to have you back because I have so many more questions, but before we wrap it up, I want to hit you with some rapid-fire value bombs. So we haven't prepared oh you for any of these. These are just quick things off the top of your head. Think about that interior designer or landscape designer who is growing his or her business and some advice that you're going to be able to give them. So for example, I like to ask people, what's the best thing in your contract? What's a clause that you really rely on in your contract? Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> I look at the contract as the entire whole living, breathing organism. I don't think that there's one particular part that I'm going to pull out. But 
the one thing that I'm, I'm going to be very clear with my clients on and say, this is the target price that we are working towards. Any changes that happen outside of the design that we're working on will be reflected in the price. So that's, I always point that out to them. So you, they always say, "Hey, I want to, I want to add this, and what about that?" And, and it's not, it's it's not in the original design. It's going to cost. So you have a mechanism for capturing that original scope of work. Absolutely, it's oh, too scary otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a good one. How about this one? What do you rely on technology to help you do your job? Is there a, a tool or an app that you use that you couldn't live without? So I'm really lucky from the outdoor perspective because I can use Google Maps and I can do qual- or do all of my takeoffs using the Google Map app. So I can look into somebody's backyard and do to scale drawings using that without actually ever having to go into the space and take measurements. Wow, that is really lucky. I am not going to hope that Google Maps will eventually look into people's homes. I think that's creepy. So, but that is an advantage for outdoor spaces. You know, there's nothing you can do anymore where you're not being watched kind of 24 7. That's another conversation, but that's a new reality, isn't it? It's true. Just move way out into the country where nobody really cares. Carson, give advice to that person who's just starting out or thinking of launching a business. What would you tell them? I am a huge advocate and believer of being able to write a good business plan. Not just from the sense that it keeps me grounded as far as all of the amazing ideas and the what I could do with my business, but it keeps me pointed in the right direction. But at the same time, the skills required to build a good business plan are the same skills you're going to use every single day. So being predictive, being able to communicate your, your wants, your needs, your lists, your must-haves, being on track and on time. Like These are all the things that are in a business plan. So if you can do that, you can run a business. Okay, you are definitely coming back and we are going to talk about how to build a business plan because I think a lot of creative professionals skip that step, uh, think it's not important or it doesn't apply to them because they run a, quote, small business, unquote. And I think you're so right. That's a really smart thing to think about. And you're a smart guy and a talented guy. And I love seeing you on TV and being on TV with you. And thank you for taking time to do this for us today. Yay. Well, thank you for including me. I mean, we all contribute to making a homeowner's life something special. So the fact that we're having an open conversation about it is exciting for me, too. And let's work together. I'm looking forward to that. I'm in. At Business of Design, we know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, plus access to me as your mentor and guide. Unlike coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, Business of Design is a fast track to implementing strategies and getting immediate results for independent interior designers. Unlike coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, Business of Design is a fast track to implementing strategies for immediate results. 
and it works for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, landscapers, professionals just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to our contracts as well. So what are you waiting for? Together, we can achieve extraordinary results. We hope you'll join today.